This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. And open up your Bibles to Acts 23. Acts 23, we are back in the book of Acts, where we have been most of uh, 2013. And um, we are almost done with the book of Acts. And uh, let me pray, and we'll uh, jump in and begin to uh, study these, this section today, which has got a lot of interesting things in it. Lord, we thank you that your word speaks to us, that it is alive, that it is living, it is active, it pierces our hearts, it pierces to the core of our being, revealing truth. And so we ask you to speak to us by your spirit from your word today. That you, I ask that you would open our hearts and minds. I ask that you would awaken us um, and help us to, uh, Lord, just uh, be aware of you in a fresh way and of how you work. Speak to us through this text. Um, Lord, and most of all, change our hearts and minds. We want to be changed. We don't want to encounter your word and remain the same. We want to encounter your word and be changed. And only you can do that. So come, Spirit of God, and change us. And Lord, may our hearts respond to you, we pray today. Lord, give us open minds, clear minds, uh, to hear your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, conventional wisdom says I should just sort of do something light, short, simple because you people are in a food coma. I mean, when he got up and said, how was your Christmas? And like two children just faintly said, ah, I mean, that, that was uh, just a low energy mark in the history of Grace Church. And so uh, conventional wisdom says that I should just do something really, conventional wisdom says I shouldn't even preach. 95% of the churches in America today, the normal guy who preaches won't be preaching today. They'll bring in the youth guy or somebody will come in and fill the spot. That guy's taking off. And if he is preaching, he's doing something very simple. But here's what I'm doing. I'm covering two chapters of the book of Acts, which will require you to wake up right there. You will have to wake up and your mind will have to engage because you have been eating, you have been shopping, you have watched more movies in the last week than the previous six months, uh, you have been playing games, you have been napping, uh, you have been sleeping in and staying up, yeah, he'll cheer for the nap, sleeping in and staying up, yeah, that's, that, that person's about to take one right now, and uh, this is, the, and, you, and you, are on, you are in carbohydrate coma, so you, you just got to wake up. And because the Lord's got something good for us. Here's how we're finishing the book of Acts. Two chapters today, two chapters next week, two chapters the next week, and we've completed the book. So we moved really slow. If you're new here, we normally covered like a few verses, half a chapter, but this end part where Paul's been arrested, we're covering a lot. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the background because it feels like about five years ago that we were in the book of Acts. I'm going to tell you what happened last time we taught it. And then we're going to read and I'm going to talk a little bit, read a little bit more. I'm going to explain a little bit more and then I'm going to tie it up with some applications at the end. So rather than sort of having a sermon with a central idea, I'm going to run through the narrative and pull out several different ideas and applications that I believe are here. Okay, here's what happened last time. Last time we were in Acts, Paul went to Jerusalem. 
Paul's the, uh, the, the apostle to the Gentiles. He's bringing the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. His friends all say, do not go to Jerusalem. A prophet comes and says, you're going to be in big trouble if you go to Jerusalem. And Paul goes to Jerusalem. He meets with James, who's the leader of the Jerusalem church. So he's the leader of sort of the Jewish Christians. Paul's the leader of the Gentile Christians. They have this powwow. Paul tells him everything that has happened among the Gentiles. How many people have come to Christ and James is Total excited about this. They celebrate it. And then James tells Paul that he has been slandered. Slander is when you spread something that is untrue, when an untrue report about someone else uh, is communicated and their character or their reputation is affected. So people have been spreading untruths about Paul's teaching. And they've been saying this. Paul, when he goes into Gentile territory, any Jews that are there, he tells them to be against their people. He tells them to be against their law. He tells them not to circumcise their children. And Paul does not teach that. He, he teaches that circumcision doesn't provide any special, um, doesn't give you any special standing with God uh, religiously, uh, that only Christ, we're only saved through Christ. He taught that. But he didn't tell Jews not to circumcise their children, their boys. So... He says, here's what you can do. Go to the, prove them wrong. Prove that you're not anti-Israel. Go to the temple, go through a purification ritual, and then there's several guys that are fulfilling a vow. Go pay their offering for the vow. Paul says, I'll do that. So he goes through a ritual. He goes to pay their offering. While he's at the temple, he's purified. He goes through this, this process. While he's at the temple, some Jews from Asia recognize him. And they say, there's Paul. They tell everybody, Paul is against us, and Paul defiled this temple. Because there was a Gentile guy earlier in the week with Paul named Trophimus, and they saw him, so they thought he brought him in the temple. He didn't. So these Asian Jews freak out. They start beating Paul. People are yelling. It's a mob scene. They're going to they're gonna kill him. And uh, I- I- Israel is overseen by Rome. So the Roman tribune who oversees the thousand soldiers, the Roman tribune himself comes down. He and his soldiers grab Paul from the jaws of death as he's being pummeled by these Jews. And he says, I'm going to take you to the barracks. So he's taken to the barracks. Paul says, can I say something to everybody? So Paul tells his testimony. Everybody listens. He tells how he met Jesus. Then he tells this one little part about how Jesus appeared to him and said, go reach the Gentiles. Whoa, they start freaking out again. They start grabbing him, so he just, they have to get him out of there. So then the Roman tribune says, I don't know why everybody is in mayhem, in mayhem over this guy. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to find out what's wrong with him. I'm going to flog him until I find out what's wrong with him. They stretch out Paul. They're about to beat him. Paul says, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. Oh, you can't flog a Roman citizen, especially not without a trial. So they say, oh, okay, and they let go. That's where we ended last time. Today, we're going to start in 20, actually 2230. I told you 23. Go one verse up. But the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, since he didn't flog him, he wanted to know the real reason he was being accused by the Jews. He unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people.
Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees said, there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent... The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must, also test, so you must testify also in Rome. Okay, so here's what happens in this section. The, the tribune realizes he can't flog it out of him and find out what the problem with Paul is, so he takes him to the Sanhedrin, the council, and he brings them before the council basically to talk to Paul and to maybe raise some kind of uh, a verdict concerning him. So he, he comes down before the council, and the first thing Paul does is he says, I have a clear conscience. As he says, my conscience is clear. His opening words are, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Then the high priest says, punch him in the mouth. And he, he says one thing, they slug him in the mouth. And then Paul responds saying, who are you to hit me, strike me like this? You are a white, verse three, whitewashed wall. A whitewashed wall is a, a metaphor. It means you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. You wash something white on the outside so it looks good. You're a hypocrite because you're judging me according to the law, and yet you, uh, contrary to the law, order me to be struck. What he's saying is, you are a legal counsel, and you're not abiding by the law. You didn't give me due process. I spoke, and you punished me. I just made a comment that my conscience is clear, and you punished me without due process. Without verdict, he's saying, this is hypocritical. This whole thing is hypocritical. Then someone says to him, why are you reviling God's high priest? And Paul says, he didn't know this was the high priest. And then he quotes a verse out of Exodus that says, yeah, the Bible does say, you do not, uh, you do not criticize the ruler, the high priest. You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, a couple of questions are interesting here. How would Paul not have known this is the high priest? Why would he say, I didn't know this was the high priest? I mean, this is a very curious thing. A couple of reasons could be. One is, Paul hasn't been to Jerusalem in a long time. And so it could be that he doesn't recognize this guy by sight. Likely, this is not a formal trial where everybody is in their clerical garb, and the high priest is probably dressed like we would see a judge in a black robe. The high priest has certain garb, and he's probably not wearing it. They probably are just all maybe dressed in street clothes. We don't know. Uh, but, but that could be one read. The guy doesn't, isn't distinguished from everyone else and he couldn't see. Another theory is that Paul evidently uh, may have had eye problems. Galatians seems to indicate that perhaps he had some kind of eye problems. He said that he wrote with big letters when he wrote himself. He said that he had problems. He was sick and the Galatians would have given him their own eyes if they could which could be a figure of speech, or it could mean he had an eye problem. We don't know. So it could be that he just couldn't see. He hears a voice and couldn't see what was going on. But for whatever reason, he does not recognize the high priest. 
Why does the high priest strike Paul in the mouth? Because Paul has made this statement, look, I've walked with a clear conscience all my life until today. What Paul is saying is, as a follower of Jesus, I continue to walk in the truth. I, like you, am from Israel, I am a Jew, but when I found out about Jesus, he appeared to me, I believed in Jesus. When he appeared to me and showed me who he was, I believed in Jesus, and I've still obeyed God. So as a follower of Jesus, I obey God. This, in their mind, is likely blasphemous. I mean, minimally, it's terrible arrogance. Because they would say, if you're following Jesus, you're not, you shouldn't have a clean conscience. You're not obeying God. You're opposed to God if you are following this Jesus, and you're opposed to us, is what they believe. So they probably think he's blasphemous. Minimally, they view him as arrogant. And so they strike him. He's claimed to have lived righteously, and they say, no, you have not. So then what happens in the trial is Paul identifies himself as a Pharisee. Now, the council is made up of two parties, two religious groups, one very conservative, almost fundamentalist, the Pharisees, and one liberal. The Sadducees are liberal, like they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in spirits, as this passage teaches us. And so they, uh, they are much more liberal. They're much more friendly with Rome. And uh, so they're both in the council. And so Paul identifies himself as a Pharisee. He says, look, I'm a Pharisee. And uh, that's his background. I'm a son of a Pharisee. And he, when he recognizes this, he says, I am on trial today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. He believes that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and Jesus, the resurrected Lord, appeared to him and talked to him and told him to follow him and to be a missionary for him, reaching the Gentiles. And so he believes not only that Jesus was resurrected, but we will all be resurrected one day. Well, that starts a fight because the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. So they start arguing, the Pharisees start arguing, the scribes who are like the scholars, so the Pharisees have some scholars that stand up and say, hey, we don't think there's anything wrong with this guy. Hey, what if a spirit did tell him this? And so they're sort of taking his side. He's their boy now because he is a Pharisee. And now what's come into view is that their point of view is being challenged by the Sadducees. So everybody starts yelling. They start contending sharply, it says. And it becomes violent. I mean, these guys, to go to like their church family meetings or whatever, people start throwing blows. And so they are becoming violent again, this court. And, uh, I mean, can you imagine this? This just must be quite a scene. You just can't imagine, like, standing before the Supreme Court of the U.S. and, like, one of the justices at about 85 reaches over and starts punching somebody and they're going at it. So these guys are going at it and they grab Paul and they're being violent with Paul. And so the tribune who sent him down to get an answer is concerned. So he sends his soldiers and he rescues Paul so that he is not literally torn to pieces. They start grabbing him and pulling on him and he feels like like parts of his body are going to be removed and he's going to be shredded by this religious brouhaha. So um, that's it. He gets taken back to the barracks and they don't find out what's really going on. They don't find out why Paul, he doesn't find out why Paul is being charged. Okay, here's what happens that night. And this is key to understanding the rest of the book, the rest of Paul's life and the rest of the book. Verse 11, the next night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome also. Here's what happens next. If you can put yourself in Paul's mind, 
his friends have said, don't go. He had a prophet say, here's the word of the Lord. You are going to get arrested if you go. Everyone had encouraged him not to. When he gets there, here's what's happened. He tries to do the right thing and win the ears of the Jews by going down to the temple and being purified. So he's trying to win the ears of the Jews to be a witness for Jesus to them. And what happens is they arrest him and they oppose him. That didn't go well. Then they beat him. That did not go well. Then he gets rescued and almost gets flogged, whipped uh, by, the, um, by the tribune, Lysias. And then the tribune sends him down to stand before the council. And again, they start tearing him, trying to tear him to pieces. And so he's trying to carry the mission forward. And he is getting hit, hurt, uh, rejected, persecuted at every turn. And so Paul's human. The text doesn't say this, but it's not hard to imagine that Paul may have wondered if this was such a good idea to come to Jerusalem and when he was encouraged by his friends not to. And what happens? The Lord shows up. I love this, verse 11. The Lord stood by him. Presence. The Lord's presence is there with him. The Lord stands by him. Everyone's opposed to him there, but he's got Jesus appearing to him and standing by him And he not only has presence, but he has a promise as well. Take courage, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you will testify in Rome. Paul's goal is to get to Rome, the the lead city, the central city of the empire, and communicate the gospel there. And what he's saying is, look, you're going to make it to Rome. Jesus is in control. Throughout the book of Acts, here's what we've seen. God has overseen, directed, protected, and ensured the progress of the gospel. God has ensured that the gospel moves forward. God has created circumstances. God has appeared to his people like Paul and told him not to go here and to go there. He has worked to see that the gospel went forward through regular people planting a church in Antioch, um, through reaching the Gentiles through Peter. He has uh, starting to reach the Gentiles through Peter and then broadly reaching them through Paul and his team. So he has ensured that the the gospel has gone forward and he now says, I'm ensuring that just as you are testifying here, you will make it to Rome. He's beaten, he's imprisoned, but the Lord comes with his presence and with his promise. I am with you and you will make it to Rome. Paul uh, is, receives this guarantee from Jesus that he will see that Paul makes it to Rome. Now, Paul is responsible to preach the gospel, but God is more responsible to see the gospel go out. In fact, God is ultimately responsible. God is in control. And that explains why what has happened has happened. Why didn't the Jews beat Paul to death? Why did Lysias, the tribune, come and rescued him? Because Jesus wants Paul to make it to Rome, and he will ensure that happens. That's why he wasn't beaten to death. Why wasn't he flogged? Because To death, anyway, because God wanted to ensure that he made it to Rome. Why didn't the council actually tear him to pieces? 
because God wanted to ensure that he made it to Rome. Jesus planned for him to testify in Rome. And and what we see here is that nothing can stop the purposes of God. No opposition, no violent crowd can stop the purposes of God. It does not matter how many people in the crowd want him dead, he will not die if that's not God's will. God protects him. A violent mob cannot take his life. A Roman ruler cannot flog him, which could lead to death at times, could not flog him to death because God wants him to make it to Rome. This doctrine of God's rule, God's oversight, God's protection, God's running everything, this is called the doctrine of God's sovereignty in the Bible, and it is foundational. It is throughout the book of Acts. It is throughout the book of Scripture, throughout the Scripture. And it brings tremendous rest and confidence to us. God's purposes will be fulfilled. That's what he's saying. Take courage. Be encouraged. Why should he be encouraged? Because you're going to make it where I'm taking you to Rome. You're going to make it where you desired to go, but you're going to make it where I'm calling you to Rome. Now, some, some reaction to this idea can be that, well, if God's in control and God's going to do whatever he wants and God's going to get Paul to Rome, then why does it matter what we do? If God's going to accomplish his purposes and do what he wants, then do our actions really matter? Look at the passage. Look what he says. Verse 11, take courage for as you testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Do you see how both are there? God doesn't say, I will testify in Rome. He didn't say, I will find someone else. He said, you must testify. So, Paul, I'm going to get you there. But you must be responsible. Paul must. Jesus will guarantee he gets there, but Paul will be responsible to open his mouth under threat of prosecution and even death. Paul will need to open his mouth. And so we see both. Jesus orchestrating the circumstances to fulfill his purposes, and Paul responsible to testify. Paul is responsible, God is ultimately responsible. And that's the way it works in your life as well. And in my life as well. That God is ultimately responsible for your life. God is ultimately responsible to fulfill his purposes in your life. And that is never to lead you and me to some kind of complacence, complacency or laziness or just checking out and saying, God will do what he wants to do. No, we must testify. We must obey. We must follow his word. So we're called to follow him, and he guarantees he will fulfill his purposes in our lives at the same time. Well, how does that work? I don't know. I don't know. It'll be a very short discussion. That is a mystery. We only know that both are true. God is sovereign, and we are responsible. Both are in the Bible. The accent of the Bible is clearly on God as sovereign, but not to the place that it erases the truth of our responsibility. Paul, you must get there because you must testify in Rome. Jesus will get him there. And and we have the same promise. We don't have the Lord appearing to us like Paul did, but we have his scripture. And we have the same promise. I will never leave you or forsake you is what the scripture promises. I am with you always to the end of the age, he says. Last week we studied Emmanuel, God with us. This is such an encouraging word to Paul because Jesus is saying, I am with you, I will fulfill my purposes, nothing will stop me from getting you to Rome. And immediately in the next section of scripture we see how how, uh, Paul is tested 
and how God intervenes for him to get him to Rome. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, this is the plot to kill Paul. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. What a great example. Not only is there some kind of some mystery and intrigue in this conspiracy to kill Paul, but isn't it amazing that we see immediately God intervening to ensure that the plans of man are foiled and the plans of Jesus stand? Because what happens, the immediate thing is somebody wants to kill him. And these aren't like regular assassins. These are haters. I mean, somebody who says, until Paul is dead, okay, until Paul is dead, I won't, I won't eat. Okay, somebody can go a little bit, of, little bit of time without eating. Until Paul is dead, I won't drink. That's a hater. I mean, that is somebody serious. That is somebody who says, I'm taking him down. I'm not even going to have any water until this guy is dead. So 40 of them conspire, at least 40 of them conspire. They're going to say, hey, bring him down. Tell Lysias, the tribune, that, that, the, that we need to hear from him. Uh, that, uh, we, that the council needs to hear from Paul. And when they're bringing him down, 40 of us will jump out and kill him. Now, here's the thing. God ensured that Paul's nephew heard this. And he, he must be a young guy. In verse 17, it says, take this young man to the tribune. And when he goes to the tribune, verse 19, the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately. This is the ruler of the area, like the soldier over a th- I mean, the guy over a thousand soldiers. So he's not taking a 35-year-old man by the hand and going to the side. And when he says young man took him by the hand, I don't think we're talking 18, 19. I think we're talking about like a little guy. Little guy that you'd hold the, like a tough Roman soldier holding hands. Had to be a little guy. Took him off to the side and said, what is it you want to tell me? You're not doing that with a grown man. Well, what he wants to tell him is that, tell him of the plot. And he says, don't, so don't, don't do what they're saying because they're going to kill Paul. Isn't this amazing? How did a young guy here, I mean, if you're like doing a conspiracy to murder and you are like of the no eat or drink until he's dead kind of murderer, if you're at that, I mean, you're probably doing that in secret, right? This is like really hush hush. 
You're not putting this out to social media, hashtag kill Paul. I mean, you're not doing that. This is like a private, like a secretive thing. So how does a young guy, hold his hand, what do you want to tell me? How does that guy hear about a murder plot? God. God intervenes. It does not matter how hateful you are. It does not matter how many people are in your conspiracy. It does not matter how brilliant your plan is. If God doesn't want it to go through, it will not go through. And he will take a young person and reveal a secret. When the young person, uh, when Paul says to the centurion, take him to Lysias, the ruler of the, the, of the military leader, not a ruler, but the military leader, what if the centurion wouldn't have done that? Why would you take a little kid to him or a young person to him? Why would you do that? So he takes him. He listens to him. But the most brilliant plans or the strongest brute force will not succeed if God opposes it. So the tribune takes it very seriously. Look what happens next. Then the tribune called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. That's 9 p.m. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon him with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he said he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Okay, so Felix takes it really seriously. At nine o'clock that night, uh, he, he gets Paul out of town. And look at what he, what he brings. 200 soldiers... 70 of them on horse, and 200 spearmen, guys who are, you know, use a spear in battle. 470 soldiers. He only had 1,000. And he brings 470 of them to guard Paul to get him up to the governor in Caesarea. Caesarea is the headquarters of Judea. It's like the capital of Judea for Rome. So that's where the governor is. So he wants the governor to hear this because he's going, man, it is heating up in Jerusalem. There are plots to assassinate him. And so he gets 470 of his soldiers in case of these four, in case of these 40 fasters, these assassins try to kill him. He's got plenty of help to take them out. And so he is really taking this seriously. He said, I'm getting this out of Jerusalem. I'm getting it out so we don't have some kind of upheaval here over this guy. I'm taking him to the governor. And then he says, he writes him a letter, which is generally true. He, I mean, he, he didn't really tell the truth. He said, you know, he was, um, 
The general flow of it's true. But he says, I came upon the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Uh, Not quite. He didn't, like he was going to be killed. Oh, he's a Roman citizen. i got to rescue him. No, he had him stretched out, ready to be whipped when Paul said, I'm a Roman citizen. And then he stopped. So not quite accurate. Puts himself in the best light before the governor. But generally, what he says to the governor is true. I sent him to you. And he says, I told his accusers they need to come up to you. So Felix says, okay, um, where are you from? Cilicia, he says, okay, I'll hear you. Once your accusers are here, then I will hear your case. Chapter 24, this is Felix hearing the case. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it was not more than twelve days since I went to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Okay, so here he comes, uh, and we see this trial. This is his first, like, real trial before Roman authority. And uh, the first guy he meets with is this Felix. And so he comes, and uh, the, the Ananias comes. It's like 65 miles away. The high priest, that's how serious this is. The high priest travels 65 miles with leaders of the council to this uh, trial. And they evidently have hired a lawyer. Probably this Tertullus guy is a lawyer. 
uh, he opens up with major flattery, what, what John Stott called almost nauseating flattery. Uh, because this guy Felix was a bad leader, he was not known for doing reforms. The Jews hated this guy. He was cruel. He was harsh. Uh, he was not bringing peace, but Tertullus, for the sake of opening his case, says, since we enjoy much peace, since through you we enjoy much peace. This guy was not bringing peace to the Jews. That's historically untrue. Uh, since by your f- more, for, uh, foresight, reforms are being made for this nation. He was not making reforms the Jews were happy about at all. So he just says one thing after another that's not true. And then he makes three charges against Paul. This is their case against Paul. One He's a plague. Well, that's, that's a pretty serious thing. What does he mean by a plague? This man, verse 5, is a plague. He stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. So number one, he stirs up riots. And that's serious because they, uh, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, they want peace. And so if you've got a guy who's stirring up riots, they're going to put him down. That's the first charge. The second charge is that he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That is, they were called the Nazarenes, they were called the Way, it's the Christian church. So he's a leader among the Christians, that's the second charge. Third charge is that he even tried to profane the temple. Those are the three charges in court that Felix hears against him. So Paul speaks without near the flattery. When he, when he gives an answer, he doesn't use near the flattery. Look at Paul's words. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. A much more honest assessment. The first guy is, oh, we're so grateful to you. You're changing the world. Our very lives and existence are radically reoriented by your greatness. Uh, so Tertullus worships the guy, basically. And Paul says, now you've been a judge for a long time, so I'm going to make my defense. So his very neutral statement just says you've been here a long time. And then he defends himself against these charges. Verse 11, you can verify, okay, you can verify 12 days ago I was in Jerusalem. I, was, uh, I wasn't disputing with anyone. I wasn't stirring up a crowd anywhere, and they can't prove that. He's saying there's no one that can prove it. He was there making an offering. He did nothing. They grabbed him and accused him. So he said, I, I was there. They cannot prove this uh, at all. I confess to you, oh, th- so that, that's his first answer to the first thing that they say is he, he is innocent. I was there in the temple worshiping. They came and started beating me. And no one can prove different, differently is what he says. Number two, what about being a ringleader of the Nazarenes? That one he does agree to that charge. Verse 14, I confess to you that according to the way, that is Christianity, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything in the law and the prophets. I have hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So he said, look, I am a ringleader of the Nazarenes, but in essence, we're the true Israel, is what he says. We are, I'm a true believer. I believe in all the Old Testament. I believe in the law. I believe in the prophets, just like them. Now, ultimately, I believe Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament prophets said would come. I'm just, I'm like a true Jewish believer. I'm just staying in line with my history. I'm just reading the Old Testament, which points to Jesus and believing in him. And I believe there's going to be a future resurrection. And that's what I'm on trial for, by the way. So this charge of he's a ringleader, he's saying, well, yeah, I am a part of this group, but it's not a sect. It's truly... The, the people of God that uh, have believed in Jesus. That's what he says. So he, 
just in essence dismisses. That's just a religious charge. Number three, they say that you um, that you in the temple that you went to the temple and that you defiled it. Verse sixteen. I take pains to have a clear conscience towards God and man. The last time he said that, he got punched in the mouth. He said, I have a clear conscience to the Sanhedrin. I take pains. It's serious to me. What God thinks is serious. I fear the Lord is what he's saying. After several years, 17, I came to bring alms. That's an offering to my nation and for the poor and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified. I had gone through a purifying ritual in the temple and without any crowd or tumult, but some of the Asian Jews basically took him. So I had no crowd. I was causing no problem. I was purified. Defiling the temple, I went through a Jewish purification ceremony. Man, I respect God. I fear God. I'm not going to go down to the temple and trash it and defile it. Are you kidding? That's not me. And then he said, it's the guys from the Jews from Asia that grabbed me. And then he says, they ought to be here bringing the accusation. They're the ones who said I did something wrong. Where are my accusers, basically, is what he goes on to say. So Paul systematically answers each of the charges against him, all of them. He says, I have a clear conscience. Lastly, he says, the council found nothing against me. If they did, let them report their findings. So the Sanhedrin didn't find me guilty. What happened? They started fighting with each other and then trying to tear him apart. So... He set out, uh, it is respect, uh, with his respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. This is all about me proclaiming that Jesus is resurrected and that we will all be resurrected to give an account for our lives. That's what he is on trial for. Now, verse 22 says, Felix has a good knowledge of the way. Felix knows about Christianity. He's not suspicious of Paul. doesn't seem like he's worried about Paul. And what he says is, when Lysias comes, then I will decide your case. So let the tribune come up, and then I will decide your case. That wasn't necessary. He was stalling. Why is he stalling? Well, we're going to read a few more verses, and we're done. The reason he's stalling is because he thinks he can get a bribe. And secondly, he's stalling because he wants to be in good with the Jews. So uh, he just keeps him locked up instead of letting him go. Verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. I want to have a lot of evangelistic conversations with you, and maybe you'll try to bribe me is what that's saying. Verse 27, When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So the next thing we find out is that his wife, Drusilla, was a Jew, and he knew about Christianity. Uh, Drusilla, her dad was Herod, the, king, uh, the guy who died in chapter 12. Her brother was Herod II. We'll read about him next. Um, and so Paul comes and speaks to him about Jesus. And look what he tells him. He reasoned with him about righteousness. Felix was an unrighteous man. And self-control. Felix was known to be an immoral man. Actually, he had allured, maybe seduced, Drusilla away from her previous husband. So he was, he was not a moral man. So he talks to him about self-control and the coming judgment. And what's the effect? Felix was alarmed. Felix was alarmed. 
Paul, in preaching the gospel, gave the law first so that he would see his need for the gospel. He talked to him about the points at which he was uh, sinful. He talked to him about righteousness. He wants a bribe. He's an unrighteous man. He's an unrighteous ruler. He talked to him about self-control, likely an immoral man. He talks to him about the coming judgment. You will stand before God and give an account for your life. Why is he telling him this? So he will see his need for Jesus who will forgive his unrighteousness, who will forgive his lack of self-control, who will welcome him into heaven if he believes in him, and will change his life and give him power to live a righteous life. So this is what happens, and ultimately he leaves him there for two years. He comes out of office, has a number of these evangelistic conversations with Paul, and then he just leaves him there when he gets transferred somewhere else. So that's the account of chapters 23, 24. What are a few points of application? I'm going to draw several observations from this passage that I hope will help us as we go into the new year and then we are finished. Number one, God is in control. This is a major theme that Paul will make it all the way to Rome and in every case God is in control. God is in control ensuring that Paul isn't harmed when he's beaten, that he doesn't die. Paul is in control, uh, God is in control when there's a conspiracy against Paul. God is in control when he stands and gives an account of his story before the Roman governor. God is in control. In every one of these situations, God is in control. God is in control when the Sanhedrin cannot make a judgment about him because they start arguing amongst themselves about the resurrection. God is in control. God continues his purposes through Paul, even though Paul is in difficulty. Paul has taken a couple of beatings, and Paul is locked up. Now, he is locked up in a pretty good situation. His friends can come and go. He gets visitors. He's, he's kind of house arrest, we might say. He's probably not in some dungeon or something. He's under some kind of a house arrest, um, you know, without a monitoring device. But that's kind of what it is. He's under this house arrest thing. And he's given some freedom. But he has lost his freedom. And yet God is in control. Paul is not put on the shelf. He is still testifying about the gospel. His ministry still goes on. He's still being used by God. God is in control of Paul and will get him where he wants him to be. And he can manipulate any circumstances. He can have a young man overhear a conspiracy plot. He can have wise leaders intellectual leaders lose their cool, start freaking out so there's no verdict against him. God can do all of these things because he's in control, and the same is true for you. The same is true for us as a church. God is in control. God will have his purposes fulfilled through Grace Church. God calls us to respond to his purposes, his calling. He calls us to be on mission with his gospel, but God will fulfill his purposes. No one will stop God from fulfilling his purposes. That's true in your life as well. No one can stop God's purposes for you and in you and through you. He is present with you. Jesus stands before Paul, but the Holy Spirit lives in Paul and in you as well. God will fulfill his purposes through you. And maybe you had a challenging 2013. You're looking forward to a fresh start in three days or four days or whatever it is. You're looking for a fresh start in the new year. Maybe it's been a difficult year. You're hoping for a better 2014. I am, personally and for us as a church. I'm hoping for a better 2014. But as I review 2013, I realize that nothing stops God and his purposes. Maybe you felt some personal setbacks. 
or some kind of challenge in 2013, God is still working. God is still present. God has never left you or forsaken you. God is working all things together for your good, Romans 8:28. And we don't know how all that happens, but the text of Scripture makes it very clear, and the narratives of Scripture like this demonstrate that it's true, that God fulfills His purposes in us and through us, and will do so through us corporately as well. And so there's great comfort in that. There's great comfort in every step of the way, God doing what he needs to do to get Paul where he needs to be, and the same is true for you. Number two, Paul may be chained, but the gospel is unchained. I almost said the gospel is off the chain, but I didn't want to sound overly cool. So I'll just say the gospel is not off the chain, but the gospel is unchained. The gospel is unchained. None of these difficulties hinder the gospel. I mean, you think about what Paul's been doing. Actually, you can see how the the gospel is going forth through all of these things. And Paul stands up and speaks to a large Jewish crowd in the temple about the gospel. He stands up before the Sanhedrin and talks about the gospel. He's got the ear of the religious authorities, not what someone said about him, but what he says. Paul is speaking to the Roman authorities as well. Paul has got the ear of people. He's speaking to a governor here. He's got freedom for people to come and minister to his needs. Paul is more concerned about telling others about Jesus than he is his own freedom. And what we're going to learn from his imprisonment is Paul's going to do his best writing. Some of his, I mean, it's a scripture. You can't say it's best writing. It's all perfect. But uh, <laughs> some of his best letters, you know, if they were written, any of Paul's letters that are in the Bible are all perfect, so we can't rank them. But uh, Paul does uh, perfect writing while in prison. Most people think that uh, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, which are called the prison epistles, were written once he gets to Rome. Some argue that they're written right here in Caesarea. But we know he, they were written while he was in chains, probably in Rome. So the gospel's going forth to the churches even during this time. And Paul is communicating the gospel. Paul is focusing on the resurrection. Paul is focusing on eternity. It's telling that when he preaches to Felix that he raises this issue of his eternal destination. That's a big part. The way Paul preaches the gospel here isn't, may not be the way we would always preach the gospel. We might really emphasize some of the personal benefits, and there are tremendous personal benefits to receiving Jesus for sure. But Paul goes to the issue and shows Felix he has a need for this gospel. So we see that. The gospel is going forth in truth. In truth. Here's the last thing. God is in control. The gospel is unchained. God will fulfill his purposes and take the gospel forth. And I'm going to balance that with our responsibility. Here's the last thing that's in this passage that I see that's really clear, is that godliness matters in our witness It's interesting to me, godliness matters. It's interesting to me that Paul, on two different occasions, testifies to his own godliness. I know that doesn't sound very humble, does it? You think, whoa, you know. But he testifies that his conscience is clear with regard to the things of God. He says that to the Sanhedrin. My conscience is clear. He later repeats that as well in uh, 20, what does he say in verse 16, I think, of 24... Yes, so chapter 24, I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. What is he saying here? Obeying God is super serious to me. 
He's saying, I don't just say, God will do what he wants. God will reach what he wants, reach whom he wants. It doesn't matter what I do. No, he says, I take pains that I am fearing the Lord and obeying the Lord. See, for Paul, it wasn't just verbal proclamation of grace. It was obedience with a grace-formed life that mattered as well. Some people, this is an abuse of grace. Some people feel like, well, if you just preach a lot of grace, and, and, and we don't need to talk about anyone's obedience. Grace will always produce obedience. If the Holy Spirit lives in us, he will always lead us to honor the Scripture, never perfectly, but to grow little by little more to reflect this. Grace will always produce godliness. If it doesn't produce godliness, then the Bible would say we should question whether grace has touched that person. Because real grace will always produce life change. The Holy Spirit will always make us, and there are fits and starts, and there's two steps forward and three steps back, and there's seasons of backsliding. Absolutely, all of that happens. But ultimately, if you look at the graph of someone's life over a long period of time, the Holy Spirit will always conform us to Jesus and make us more holy. We will look more like Jesus over time. And Paul said, I take great pains to ensure that I am not dishonoring God and defiling his temple. That stuff is serious to me, is what Paul is saying. One, one commentator said this about the early church. Fernando's his name, last name's Fernando, Ajith Fernando. He said this, The blamelessness of Christians was an important part of the case for Christianity in New Testament times. The early Christians not only outthought their opponents, they also outlived them. He's saying the early church not only had truth on their side doctrinally, but they had godliness on their side as well. There was something compelling about their life. You read the story of Paul, there's something compelling about their testimony. But didn't we study Paul as weak? Absolutely. Sinful, weak people to be sure. And yet there's life change going on. There's life change going on. And it doesn't diminish grace to say that the grace of God produces godliness. That's the Bible. That's Titus. That's the Bible. The grace of God produces in us a godliness. And Paul says that's very important to his witness. So God is in control and will get us to our destination. Uh, The gospel is unchained and it will go forth amidst difficulty and trial. God will get the gospel forth. And lastly, godliness matters for our witness. God is responsible, and so are we. It's just that God is ultimately responsible. As we approach a new year, I think these three, these three points are just critical as we approach a new year, to know that God is in control. That's our foundational truth that we rest in. God is in control, and his gospel has set us free. Set us free. God is in control, and his grace rules over us. His grace rules over our sins, our mistakes, our limitations, All of that. So God is in control. We live our life with that in mind. The gospel is unchained. Difficulty will not hinder the gospel going forth in mission and the gospel producing godliness. And lastly, God is producing godliness in us as we respond to him. Godliness matters even in our witness. Paul appeals to his conscience. He appeals to his life. He appeals to what he believes and how he lives as a testimony. I pray that God will give us a vision of all of those. A vision of his greatness primarily. A vision of his gospel going forth in mission. And our joy and privilege to participate in that. And a vision of living with a clean conscience before him. As we seek to walk in the light as he is in the light. And have fellowship one with another. Let's pray. 
You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.